0: Along the
1: shore, the cloud waves break, the twin suns sink beneath the lake,
0: the shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a sometimes fortnightly, sometimes monthly podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. How are you? Hi, Peter. That was a haunting reading you were giving there. From Casilda's song in Act One of The King in Yellow. Yeah, it, it is, isn't it?
1: Um it's 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 interesting. It's it's one of the few hints we get as the actual contents of The King in Yellow.
0: Yeah, that scary, terrifying, mysterious play that features in some of the short stories of Robert Chambers. So, listener what we thought we'd do with this episode, with the Path to Carcosa deluxe expansion on the horizon, it might be out this month, it might be out next month, is we thought we would talk a little bit about the source material for the Path to Carcosa. If you've not yet read The King in Yellow, which is a short story collection by Robert W. Chambers, and you want to read it and you don't want any elements of it spoiled for you, Please don't listen to this episode, because what we're going to do is talk about it. Peter and I have both read it in expectation of the path to Carcosa, and this episode is going to be slightly different from our normal ones. We're going to talk about some of the stories and how we think they might end up in Arkham Horror.
1: Just to clarify what Frank said, do listen to the episode, but only after you've read the book. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yes, put it on to be listened rather than deleted immediately. So so do you want to tell us a little bit about the book to begin with, Frank? Sure. So The King in Yellow is a collection of short stories by Robert Chambers, and there are 10 short stories in it. And it was published, and I think this is actually important, it was published in 1895. Given that Lovecraft, a lot of his writing is in the nearly the 20s, so sort of 1917 to 1935 is his period. This is a good 20 years before... H.P. Lovecraft was writing his own stuff and of course the fact that it's published in the 19th century means you can place this book in a context of kind of supernatural and weird stories from the 19th century of which there are there's a, a lot more written about than we're probably going to go into in this episode but it's a pretty fertile literary field. What's interesting as well is that
1: this book isn't the first reference to Carcosa, is it?
0: No, is that is that Ambrose Bierce who has the first reference? Is that right? That's right,
1: yes. and uh, I think uh, 1886, I seem to remember. So I, I haven't read that, but I know that the concept of Carcosa was bor- then borrowed by Robert Chambers for this anthology. Uh, and then, obviously, ideas of his were subsequently borrowed by Lovecraft.
0: And we know, I think, from Lovecraft's letters that one of the main elements that H.P. That Lovecraft admired about Robert Chambers' short stories was the indirect way that he dealt with horrible elements. It's the gaze is not head-on at whatever these things are. It's glancing references to different things so in chambers's case one of the most important things is a play called the king in yellow and we only get very scant reference to that play but it pops up in various stories and seems to have a malevolent effect on people who've seen it or read it or even for some people who just talk about it it has an influence on them and i think it's fair to assume that the necronomicon by the mad arab Abdul Al Hazred is Lovecraft's attempt at doing a similar sort of thing, of having a text that you never really get to look at in its entirety. You just get it hinted at, or you get to see the influence it's having.
1: You get the impression that, that Lovecraft, whenever he read the name of a of a fictional book, he wrote it down to pull out when he was
0: writing his own stories. Yeah, exactly, exactly, to lean upon that. So some of the keywords words that pop up in The King in Yellow are Carcosa, as you already mentioned, there's Lake Harley, there's the Hyades, the stars, and also sometimes the word haster comes up. But one of the things that lends the book its strange magnetism, I think, is that Chambers writes these words with us really knowing what they are, or assuming that we know what they are, and he spends very little time trying to define those things for us. And that's Yeah, that can be quite compelling, that there's this sort of assumed knowledge, which in its own way, I suppose, is is quite Arkham Horror-esque as well, that you might be dealing with things that you don't understand and you're just trying to wing it. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that's sort of fascinating about the book is that by the end of the book, the last few stories really aren't horror stories at all. They're set in France predominantly, they're about... Uh, young artists there's one about americans in france who are soldiers and they're almost i mean a couple of them are sort of romantic short stories and some of the notes i read about the king in yellow is that they feel that the 10th story chambers was asked to add to kind of bulk up the collection and it feels a little bit like a rehashing of an earlier story so the other quite strange experience of reading the king and yellow if you read it in order is if you're there for the Lovecraftian elements, if I'm allowed to call them that, given that he wrote before Lovecraft did, but the the horror and supernatural elements, you'll find as the book goes on, fewer and fewer of those. And I found that a little bit unsatisfying about the book, but that doesn't really detract from the the portions of it that are really important for what we want to talk about now.
1: You can hardly blame Robert Chambers for that either. No, no, exactly.
0: (laughs) I suppose... The only frustration is, you, I wish there were more stories like the first ones, but you know that's a it's a wish that I'll just have to live with.
1: Yeah. <laughs> first of all, shall we talk a little bit about the King in Yellow, the book as it exists in the fiction?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So I'll, I'll read this passage from the first story. In fact, I'll, I'll read the full. I'll go back and just read the full thing because it is quite good. This is the thing that troubles me, for I cannot forget Carcosa. Where black stars hang in the heavens, where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon, when the twin suns sink into the lake of Halley, and my mind will forever bear the memory of the pallid mask. I pray God will curse the writer, as the writer has cursed this world, uh, cursed the world with this beautiful, stupendous creation, terrible in its simplicity, irresistible in its truth, a world which now trembles before the king in yellow. When the French government seized the translated copies, which just arrived in Paris, London, of course, became eager to read it. It is well known how the book spread like an infectious disease, from city to city, from continent to continent, barred out here, confiscated there, denounced by press and pulpit, censured even by the most advanced of literary anarchists. No definite principles have been violated in those wicked pages, no doctrine promulgated, no convictions outraged. It could not be judged by any known standard yet, although it was acknowledged that the supreme note of art had been struck in The King in Yellow. All felt that human nature could not bear the strain, nor thrive on words in which the essence of purest poison lurked. The very banality and innocence of the first act only allowed the blow to fall afterward with more awful effect. So this hints that The King in Yellow, broadly it's a book that you read, and then it permanently changes you. It it, drives, it often drives people mad. Is the implication I think.
0: Yeah, and what's striking about this is within the context of the of this story, which there are many things that you might not want to believe from this narrator. But if he is to be believed about this, that the king in yellow has spread around the world like a disease, like a kind of a shock wave around the world, where even as people are complaining about it and denouncing it, still the appetite to read it seems to be growing and there seems to be this desire to find out what it is
1: what which it speaks to something i I think fundamental in one of the themes in the mythos and also in human nature of just being curious you know don't press that button the first thing you want to do is press the button the more you hear about the king in yellow being dangerous the more the more taboo it is the more alluring it is Maybe we should rename our podcast Drawn to the King in Yellow. Maybe we should say to people that if they listen to it, they'll go mad and that they should definitely not listen to it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So just before the passage you read, there's a passage I want to read as well, which is it's from the same paragraph. During my convalescence, I had bought and read for the first time The King in the Yellow. I remember after finishing the first act that it occurred to me that I had better stop I started up and flung the book into the fireplace. The volume struck the barred grate and fell open on the hearth in the firelight. If I had not caught a glimpse of the opening words in the second act, I should never have finished it. But as I stooped to pick it up, my eyes became riveted to the open page and with a cry of terror, or perhaps it was of joy so poignant that I suffered in every nerve, I snatched the thing out of the coals Crept shaking to my bedroom where I read it and reread it and wept and laughed and trembled with a horror which at times assails me yet. Within this section, we have the broader effect of The King of Yellow around the world, but we also, Chambers gives us this sight of what it is to see the second act, and he's not even seeing The King in Yellow in performance, he's just reading a, a copy of the script and the power of it is that if you even see a couple of words of the second act you're in and it's driving you mad which i think is yeah kind of a really interesting horror idea that it's not a huge ghoul or a monster or a right it's just a book it's just a script and yet it has this power
1: there's a there's a section in uh i think the third or fourth story the yellow sign where he, yeah. he's he's a painter who paints the model and she she finds a copy of the book in his in his apartment he doesn't know how it's got there um and she she runs off like threatening to read it and he, he he's desperately trying to warn her not to and then he he finds her and it's almost like all the life's been drained out of her she's just lying there like looking horrified with the book open at the second act in front of her it's really chilling i found that, that bit of it
0: yes it's one of those touchstone horror moments isn't it where You can be saying no don't do it don't open that door or whatever it is and then rather than seeing what happens all you see is the result the result is someone drained of life or someone dead or someone horrified whatever whatever it is yeah i'm glad you mentioned the fourth story because we should we should be more specific here the first four stories in the book the king in yellow are the repairer of reputations the mask in the court of the dragon and The Yellow Sign. That's the titles of the first four. And they're the four that really provide us with the most knowledge, I think, about the play and also seem to interact most clearly with it. And probably they're the ones that drew our attention the most. It certainly drew mine. Is that fair to say for you? Well, well?
1: it's, it's the reason I wanted to go and read the book was to understand the context or the influences it casts onto the game we're playing and the, yeah. the kind of weird fiction and the horror fiction that, that I enjoy.
0: So we're going to run just roughly over what happens in those stories, just in a line or two. The Repairer of Reputations is such a striking opening story. It's set in 1920, and this is part of why I went and checked when the book was published, because it's it, it qualifies as speculative fiction. It's set 25 years after it came out. It's set, as far as we can tell, in America, and it's this man who has recovered from reading The King in Yellow and his interaction with someone who is known as the Repair of Reputations. And it's about him, uh, about egotism and paranoia, and how The King in Yellow plays a part of that. It should we talk
1: a bit more about this story first? Because I think it's the first one, and I think there's there's a great... I I really enjoyed The Repair of Reputations. I did too. One, yeah. one, one of my favourite little bits of fiction I've read. And we're going to get into the spoilers here. So honestly, if you haven't read it, go and read it. It's only a short story. There's a great twist at the end where we find out he was he was mad all along. <laughs> I mean, we, we know yeah. obviously he's reading The King in Yellow has changed him somehow. But what we don't realise is everything he perceives is suspect. And there's a few hints of this as we go through, and when you read it a second time, you can pick up on those. There's a section where he's he's wearing a crown.
0: That's the section that immediately came to my mind. He keeps a gold crown in a steel safe in his apartment with this really weird locking arrangement, isn't it? It's like a timer on it with an alarm ringing. Yes, yeah,
1: to remind him to put it back
0: in. Like, That's right,
1: imagined. Yeah. But then there's it, it seems other people can't hear the alarm. And when someone else sees the the crown, they they comment, I can't remember exactly what the comment is, but it's just, it looks like something really cheap and shoddy that he's made himself.
0: Yeah, I've got that passage open, so I'll read that. He's looking at himself in the mirror wearing this amazing gold jeweled crown. He stands for a long time absorbed in the changing expression of my own eyes. It was only when I saw two faces in the mirror. It was only when another face rose over my shoulder and two other eyes met mine. I wheeled like a flash and seized a long knife from the dressing table, and my cousin sprang back very pale, crying, Hildred, for God's sake! And then they, they talk a little bit, and he says, What is all this? Are you ill? No, I replied, but I doubt if he heard me. Come, come, old fellow, he cried. Take off that brass crown and toddle into the study. Are you going to a masquerade? What's all this theatrical tinsel anyway?' I was glad he thought the crown was made of brass and paste, yet I didn't like him any the better for thinking so. I love it, because this is is Unreliable Narrator 101. We've been led to believe that he's got a gold crown that he's putting on, and it's only through the eyes of someone else that we get a sense that maybe what he's telling us and what he believes is not the reality of it. And once you have that doubt, then you think, well, are we really in the 1920s?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do we really have these these suicide machines?
0: He's obsessed with something called the Imperial Dynasty of America, of which he believes that he might possibly be in line to, to inherit. And you ask, well, is that a real thing as well? And is this man who's the repairer of reputations anything to do with that? Or is it all his own sort of fantasia that he's living in?
1: So I, I guess do, do, should we bring this briefly to Arkham before we look at the other stories as well?
0: Yeah, why not? We,
1: we absolutely know from our interview with him that, and and other things he said. Matt is a real fan of this unreliable narrator concept. He, he he referenced it on when we interviewed him, didn't
0: he? Yeah, yeah.
1: So I I feel like this is one of the elements he want he'd like to bring to Path to Parcosa, the campaign, and and maybe give us a taste of. As we play through as we play through it would would you agree with that
0: yeah i I really would i I'm sort of scratching my head as to how you would bring it in, but yeah, beyond that i'm um, I'm just really intrigued. I think it could be a really interesting possibility, and I think there's probably a lot of room in places like the campaign log and the act and agenda cards to maybe be sowing these seeds of doubt about what's happening or not happening. Because I think mechanically, if you say you have an enemy engaged with you and then suddenly it turns out it's not an enemy, that's that's quite hard to do. But with things like Act and Agenda, if if you're flipping a card and it's it's not taking you where you think it is, that could potentially be... I suppose, I suppose really what I'm circling around is who is the narrator of a game of Arkham Horror? Is it the player or is it the encounter deck? That's
1: it. I, I feel like Matt's already dabbled with this kind of stuff with, with Midnight Masks where we've got a card which you think is one thing which is actually another thing and to me yeah. that feels like the game is, is lying to you That you don't know whether what the game is saying is true. You might even say the game will tell you something, this this won't happen and then it does happen if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah maybe we'll also see something with the, the chaos bag. I think one of the challenges of an unreliable narrator is you have to question the things that you thought were established facts. So maybe, maybe we'll have cards shuffled into our decks as well, things like that. Yeah, we'll quite possibly, see, yeah. Really.
1: yeah, yeah. I, I guess what, what's what's interesting is that as soon as... Now, I, I, I can't remember what has been... Is one of the first scenarios in the campaign, do we go and see the play, or is there a performance of the play in Arkham?
0: I believe so. Yes, that they've said that after the play, we're then going to the historical society. So that would imply that, and that's the first Mythos pack. So that would imply that we've either, either the performance has arrived in Arkham or we've been to a performance. I'm not sure.
1: Because obviously, if you see it performed or you, or you read it at least, it it leaves you permanently changed by the experience. Yeah. So is this something we're maybe going to see happen to our characters? Right right. in your campaign log, you have seen The
0: King in Yellow. And then you could have stuff, you know, for, for characters who've seen The King in Yellow, do X. If you've not seen The King in Yellow, do Y. The other thing about Repair of Reputations is I found the setting really striking, this sort of 1920s authoritarian American government suicide chambers called Lethal Chambers. And one of the things that made me a little bit sad is that it's, it's not really the universe of Arkham Files. But then as you proceed in the story, you realise that some of it might be imagined. Some of it might be in Hildred's own, you know, paraloid delusion. And perhaps we could see situations where you think a location is one thing. You think that there's lethal chambers being introduced and then actually they're not, or it's a misunderstanding and sort of, a yeah, like your perception of the world may be warping. That could be interesting. Okay, should we look at the other the other stories? Yeah, yeah, let, let, let's. So the second story is called The Mask. And this is a story about artists and particularly one artist who's found a solution, a liquid solution, that if you put things into it and then take them out again, it turns them into a kind of beautiful marbled stone. So he's been experimenting with flowers and putting them in. It's turning him into a kind of amazing sculptor that he can do this this sculpting very easily and at whim with beautiful stone. This is set in Paris as well, isn't it? Is it? I, uh, I think, I'm yes. sure it oh, Yes, it was, yeah.
1: It, this is interesting because it brings in another theme of the stories, one that ties a lot of them together, which is that it focuses on artists. Yeah. Like more bohemian characters. I think all of these, uh, certainly this one and um, the yellow sign, they're specifically artists, aren't they, those two characters?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And what's interesting, then, is looking at the characters we know we've got in the box, Path Carcosa. Yes, yeah. We've got actresses. uh, I, I know Lola in The Arkham Files backstory was in a production of The King in Yellow hmm yeah. Uh, we've just seen this last week. We've seen Safina, who's a painter. Yeah. Mark was... Mark was must have been in France because he was in, in the war, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, in the First World War, yeah.
1: We've got these characters who, who tie in to the King in Yellow in a thematic way.
0: Yes, and we also have seen Min, who her employer is driven mad by the King in Yellow. And we've also seen that her weakness is the first act of the king in yellow the card just like daisy has the necronomicon in a certain translation her weakness is the king in yellow and mechanically what that does is it basically eats up all of her attention and the only way she can shake her obsession with it is if she can somehow sort of throw a lot of her energy and resources into to getting it out of her head which i think is kind of fascinating
1: yeah, and also, bearing in mind how the dunwich legacy went, I would be not surprised at all if we see an asset in the first few packs, which is the King in Yellow Act 2.
0: Yeah, wow, and how powerful that would be. Yeah, And
1: but is it worth reading?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's how you end up saying if you've in your campaign log if you've read it or not. So back to the mask. The other thing that is striking here is that the story opens with an epigraph which is from The King in Yellow, the play from the first act. And it's just five lines of, of dialogue from scene two. So really early on. And there's two characters. There's Camilla and the stranger.
1: Do you want me to read the stranger?
0: Yeah. And I will be, in this scene. Peter will be reading the stranger. <laughs> and I will be reading Camilla. You, sir, should unmask. Indeed? Indeed. It's time. We all have laid aside disguise. But you...
1: I wear no mask.
0: Terrified to Casilda, no mask, no mask. Which I, I think that's amazing. I really want to see that play. It's sort of melodramatic, but yeah, yeah.
1: What's interesting is I've read, and we should should have put this as a as a required reading. Uh, the the section in Investigators of Arkham for Lola is about her experience of putting on the performance of the King in Yellow. And it, I think it's really good. It's one of the best little short stories in that in that collection. But they talk about the casting of the the stranger in the mask and that, and he's played by a different person on every performance. I seem to remember a different person plays him every day. Okay. And yeah. and notably, they don't do the whole play until they're ready for the first night. So they only ever rehearse the first act. She she doesn't know what, quite what's yeah. going on. So I thought that that was interesting as well. The the, the identity of this character who's called the mask or the stranger, the stranger in the the mask, it's quite mysterious. And this story doesn't really do much to answer questions we have about that,
0: does it? And obviously masks in fiction can mean many things and deceit being one of them. But in Repair of Reputations, we also had the pallid mask mentioned in capital P, capital M, a thing that we're meant to know about. So, yeah, again, this idea of maybe peeling back layers and things seeming to be concealed, but maybe they're actually in plain sight. And that, I think, will be pretty important within the Particarco's campaign of what we take at face value and what we doubt and how much we do or don't do either of those things. So, yeah. Should we move on? Yes, let's, let's... In the Court of the Dragon has a man in church and he starts to feel that he's maybe being watched and wherever he goes, he's being watched. The thing that I really liked about this is this story in combination with the next one, the yellow sign, give you this sense that being exposed to the king in yellow can also not just drive you mad, but putrefy your impressions of the world around you. So things that once you thought were lovely and beautiful and Creatively successful, become sickened, ill, horrible. And so I'm going to read a bit just from right at the start and I'll cut a little bit out so it do not go on too long. I'd always found the organ playing at San Barnabe highly interesting. Learned and scientific it was, too much so for my small knowledge, but expressing a vivid, if cold, intelligence. Taste reigned supreme, self controlled, dignified, and reticent. Today, however, from the first chord, I had felt a change for the worse, a sinister change. During Vespers, it had been chiefly the chancel organ which supported the beautiful choir, but now and again, quite wantonly as it seemed, from the west gallery where the great organ stands, a heavy hand had struck across the church at the serene peace of those clear voices. It was something more than harsh and dissonant, and it betrayed no lack of skill. This is another example where we're not quite sure if this thing is actually happening or not. Yeah, I
1: was about to say, can I read a section from the end? Yeah, please. A dazzling light filled the church, blotting the altar from my eyes. The people faded away, the arches, the vaulted roof vanished. I raised my seared eyes to the fathomless glare, and I saw the black stars hanging in the heavens, and the wet winds from the lake of Halley chilled my face. And now, far away, over leagues of tossing cloud waves... I saw the moon dripping with spray. And beyond, the towers of Carcosa rose behind the moon. Death and the awful abode of lost souls, Whither my weakness long ago had sent him, had changed him for every other eye but mine. And now I heard his voice, rising, swelling, thundering through the flaring light. And as I fell, the radiance increasing, increasing, poured over me in waves of flame. Then I sank into the depths, and I heard the king in yellow whispering to my soul, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wowzers. Yeah. It's interesting because that brings up a lot of the imagery in the song. Is it Casilda's song? Yes. Yeah, Casilda's song. So this idea of of the cloud waves, um, the black stars, uh, Lake Halley, they all come up in the song, in the play, and yet these are things he's referencing as believing to have happened to him at the end of the story.
0: There's a scene at the end of True Detective when they're in a cave and he looks up and it's the sky and it's a starry sky and he's not in a cave at all. And I I just can't help but feel that that's taken almost directly from the end of In the Court of the Dragon, where he's in the church and he looks up and he's not. He's feeling the breeze of, a, you know, wet wet wind off the lake on his face and there's the stars above him. Whether it's a hallucination or whether it's the true reality and what he's been experiencing before then is false. We're not quite sure. But it's, yeah, it's a really, really compelling image, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That leads us neatly on to the yellow sign. And the bit I want to read from that is the bit about painting. Yeah, please do. So this is from early on in the story. He... Looks out of his window, and he sees someone in the courtyard of the church across the road. I think he's on a he's at a slightly higher window, isn't he? Is that right?
1: that was my impression. He was almost in a in a in a loft or a.
0: Yeah, he's in a studio, isn't he? But yeah. I assumed it's not a ground floor studio. Yeah, that was my impression. And he this this man in the churchyard looks at him. Whatever it was the man, about the man that repelled me, I did not know but the impression of a plump white grave worm was so intense and nauseating that I must have shown it in my expression. I went back to my easel and motioned the model to resume her pose. After working a while, I was satisfied that I was spoiling what I had done as rapidly as possible, and I took up a palette knife and scraped the colour out again. The flesh tones were sallow and unhealthy, and I did not understand how I could have painted such sickly colour into a study which before that had glowed with healthy tones, and then a little bit later we have. I did not know whether it was something in the turpentine or a defect in the canvas, but the more I scrubbed, the more that gangrene seemed to spread. I worked like a beaver to get it out, and yet the disease appeared to creep from limb to limb of the study before me. I love this <laughs> again. It's a weird that that that's whole so... passage.
1: Yeah, I really like that bit. It, and you can, you can almost like feel the corruption spreading,
0: can't you? Yes, and the more frenziedly he tries to clean it up, the more it spreads. It's a very different kind of horror, isn't it, from simply being confronted by a strange creature or even by a dead body. It's a horror of being unable to trust your own perception or of seeing things in front of you go wrong. And particularly it's creative things going wrong, which I think is, is... that can be so subjective anyway. One day, one can feel creatively successful. Another day, one can feel dreadful about it. So I speak from personal experience. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I
1: I, I can appreciate that for sure. Just when you you feel, you know, you feel like you've maybe lost something that you you had previously. It's quite a a scary experience, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is.
1: I mean, I must say, I find the, the whole concept of this book you read and it permanently changes you. I find that, there's something just unbelievably sinister about it it always sends a shiver up my spine when i when i contemplate it and and think you know would i would i resist reading it what would happen to me if i did read it surely yeah. a, such a simple act
0: as reading a book can't do anything
1: horrible to
0: you and in saying what you've just said you're you're engaging in the experience of these different characters described in the stories you're you're it's a great a moment of synchronicity between what they're going through and what you're going through. Those are the questions that they also are asking themselves. Some people are saying, I'll never read it. Don't show it to me. Other people are saying, well, what harm can it have really? And that, and that's their undoing. Yeah. It really strikes at, I know at the end of the interview with Matt, we did ask him about mental illness, but it really, it really strikes at this idea of how stable are one's mental foundations and we assume in our lives that our bodies are healthy and that our minds are healthy and sufficient to comprehend everything that goes on around us. And the weird horror of The Arkham Files suggests that bodies will fail and minds will struggle to comprehend what's going on. I wonder if something that will happen in Path to Carcosa will be... I wonder how much horror will be really under pressure in this this campaign certainly early on, if it's a case of us seeing the play or meeting people who've seen it, how much will it be people being really strange and scary and terrifying? What I find interesting is that I almost
1: feel like the scope... So, so the, the the stories in The King in Yellow don't tend to be more Lovecraftian stories of ancient beings wanting to devour the world at, at, at the most clichéd. So the end of the, the Dunwich Legacy, we, our investigators save the world. It's not necessarily a story of personal horror, yet the stories yeah. in
0: The King in Yellow are more oriented around what's happening to us. And Matt mentioned this as well, didn't he, that he wants the path to Carcosa to be an intensely personal journey, and that it's not just that it's the world is ending, it's that your world is ending, whether that's your mental world or the physical world. It's that it's about you, the the investigator, your personal reality. That's going to be really fascinating to see how that comes into play.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's worth mentioning that we're still, you know, we're still going to be playing Arkham Horror, the card game, at the end of the day. So we're still going to be fighting yeah. fighting monsters and, and doing the stuff that we're used to. It's just that the context it might be framed in I think is is going to be diff- very different from the dunwich legacy
0: and to be honest with you if we find um you know if, if say there are enemies that aren't always enemies or locations that you don't know what they are or that they change halfway through a game anything slippery like that I'll I will relish because that's one of the aspects that I've always enjoyed about stories broadly labeled lovecraftian it's not simply the The climax, it's about the shaky ground that's so enjoyable. That's, I think, one of the really strong elements in the first four stories in The King in Yellow, is that you just feel so unsteady on your feet as a reader and both desperate to know what's in the play but also repulsed by it and worried by it that that you're not necessarily sure that the narrators are nice people, which is always satisfying. And yeah, it's really enjoyable. Yeah, Absolutely. If you're listening to this and you thought of something in reading The King in Yellow that you didn't understand or that you did understand and we've missed, why not send us an email and we'll talk about it in a future episode? We are drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, drawn to the flame podcast. You can also tweet to us, we're at drawn to the flame. And we're on Facebook, our Facebook page is drawn to the flame. And if you follow us on Facebook, like us on Facebook, you'll always see our episodes coming up there as soon as they appear. Or if you want to speak to me directly, I'm on Twitter. I'm FB, E-P-H underscore B-E-E. And I'm also on Discord, the Mythos Busters Discord server as Zooey Glass. Peter, how can people find you?
1: I'm everywhere as United, U-N-I-T-L-E-D. Uh, so say hello. Um, Among all, all the places that you can find Frank, you can probably find me as well. Just, I guess, a final thing, if people have listened all the way through without, have ignored our warnings and have listened all the way through without having read The King in Yellow, it, because because of the age of it, it's out of copyright. So you can you can find copies of it for free uh, online quite easily and, and legally as well. So at Gutenberg, I believe, is, got, is a good repository of, of books like this. So it's completely free to check it out. And the stories aren't too long to read as well. So please
0: do. Uh, if you haven't already. And if you're the sort of person who wants to support publishing, I have a beautiful Wordsworth Editions version. It's a very slim paperback, and it's a really nice sort of orangey yellow colour with the king and yellow on the cover and a simple crown. And then the more I look at it, the more I think the orange-yellow is actually quite a foul colour, maybe like sort of your urine when you're really unwell and dehydrated. And the colours putrefy before my eyes, and so yeah. If you want that tactile experience of something beautiful corroding before your eyes, support a local bookshop and, and go and buy one.
1: I think my, my, mine is a Rhodes is the publisher for mine, and it's got yeah, hang on, it's got a little description at the back here of the front cover.
0: I'd love it if it had a, a map of carcosa and an illustration <laughs> of it
1: This has it's 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 an odd abstract design. Here we go. About the cover. The hypnotic nature of the vortex echoes encountering the king in yellow. The horrors and truths of the universe are revealed, and the
0: reader finds himself spiralling into insanity. Hypnotic and spiralling, those are two good words for describing this. The other thing, of course, is that we've not covered all of the stories, and I'm sure there are elements in the other stories that might come in, and maybe we'll touch on them another time. Brilliant. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye.
1: I've been interrupted by a catavulsaw. Come to take me to the moon. Hello.